Hello everybody, Dr. Rick Wallace here, dropping in with a little special announcement for those who have followed me for any stretch of time. You know, outside of the businesses that I run, like Myriad Business Solutions, the Visionetics Institute, Odyssey Media Group, I also do a great deal of work inside of the inner city communities uh, in Houston, Dallas, and other areas. Uh, I'm asking now as we push a fundraiser that you support what the Odyssey Project is doing in the inner cities, uh, especially with programs like Black Men Lead, which is a rite of passage uh, initiative, and Restoring Ghetto for, Ghetto's Forgotten Daughters, which is a program focused on helping young girls, but boys as well, suffering from childhood sexual abuse, uh, rape, molestation, domestic abuse, uh, absentee fatherhood, and so many other things. Uh, the information will be in the box. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Rick. I'm back at you. Um, hope everybody's having a great start to your year. Hope you are having a great day. Uh, no matter what you're going through, remember, if you're still breathing, you're still in the fight. Uh, as you just saw in the intro, uh, we're in the midst of a push for the fundraiser for this first quarter. Um, we do need your support. And as you will see, as I come to you each day, to share with you, you're going to see the need for the work we do. Uh, those of you who have followed me for any stretch of time, you know the commitment, the level of commitment I've shown to the community, the level of commitment I've shown to scholarship, the level of commitment I've shown to research, problem solving, and so much more, and how it has landed in our hoods. Uh, we need to expand our reach, we need to expand our capacity to impact what's going on in our world. And we work on that daily at the Odyssey Project. Um, again, if you believe in the work we're doing, there are several ways that you can donate and support, and they're in the description box. Find the way that works for you and give. Now, let's talk about how five Black cops killing a black man can still be associated with racism in America. Uh, to do that, we're going to use many tenets of what is known as critical race theory. But before we can talk about using uh, critical race theory as a mechanism of understanding uh, institutional racism, we must first understand what critical race theory is because there is a great misconception of what critical race theory is. When that was this big push several years ago to stop critical race theory from entering into the public education system, uh, the big push was uh, creating an idea or attitude that critical race theory was about talking about slavery, talking about the civil rights movement, talking about Jim Crow segregation, talking about it on a historical social level and hedging up emotional uh, trauma and perpetuating hatred. And critical race theory isn't a historical notion. It is an examination of institutional realities, policies, statutes, and so forth. Uh, so I'm going to give you a real brief history of what 
uh, critical race theory is, what its primary concepts and philosophy is 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 behind. Um, this isn't meant to be a detailed, comprehensive, uh, or exhaustive explanation. It's meant to give you a basic understanding so that you can see how we are approaching the explanation of the connectivity between this event and racism. Uh, critical race theory emerged in the early 70s uh, as uh, a part of the legal academy. It emerged as an examination of institutional racism in the veins of laws, statutes, policies, and places that could be seen from a legal perspective as being biased in favor of one group and biased in, 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 in detriment to another group. And so uh, it started in the legal academy. What laws can we look at and say these laws are detrimental to Black people and these laws are privileged and beneficial to white people. Can we find within the legal system, civil and criminal, laws that impact people along the lines of race? And how do those laws benefit or harm people in those lines of race? And we obviously are able to do that even today, some 40, 40 plus years later, still being able to sit up and say, that there are laws in place that impact whites and blacks differently. But eventually critical race theory bled over into other areas outside of the legal academy. It bled over into institutional uh, racism within the public education system, within private education, uh, within corporate America, um, within politics, and in so many different other social constructs, social engineering, and so many other ways where policies are enacted. So in other words, can you look at the policies and practices of cities and municipalities and see how their practices that are statute-driven uh, statute or policy-driven are impacting different groups differently? And so you can look at, we know for a fact that we can go all the way back to redlining. We can go to benign neglect, we can go to urban renewal. Uh, we can look at the ways that policies have disproportionately negatively impacted blacks on a federal, state and local level. That's in the legal academy. So then we go off into corporate America. Are there practices within uh, the business sector of the world, uh, of the US in which you can see uh, that blacks are uh, are, uh, are negatively impacted. Hiring practices. There are studies that have shown from the University of Michigan and the University of Southern California that applications are passed over if uh, uh, the application has an ethnic name on it. So uh, Mary Beth is more likely to get attention over Shaquiqua. And I'm, I'm being extreme in this, but any name that can be seen as ethnic and associated with Blacks has a tendency to be looked over. This is a study that's been duplicated, first by Michigan, it was done by Michigan, then duplicated by the University of Southern California, and both found that there are uh, issues within hiring practices and how resumes, resumes and applications are being vetted right off the top. First thing they're looking at is the name. Many applicants are simply being disqualified and 
put to the side because of their name, if their name is deemed to be a name of a black person. And there are a lot of different things that go into that, but at the core of it, that's a policy. That's a policy that you can look at. So what you can sit up and say is institutionally, we can go down the line and find different policies and practices in which blacks are impacted. And so, so now let's get off into something that is directly associated with us. So we get the idea. You can look in public education and you can find policies where things are going to be benefit. You look at taxation and real estate owning, which affects education. And you'll find out that the, the practices and how appraisals and taxation is uh, applied has an impact on the public education system. So you can find all these different variables. You can look constantly and you can go down to something that I've done for years. And so I see it in almost everything that happens from the, 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 the things that we complain about aren't accidents. Now, so what we have to understand then is critical race theory gives true definition and placement to the idea of racism. See, it takes away the ambiguous idea of bigotry as being racist, and it applies specific practices that have the tendency not to impact one person or two people or be carried out by one pe person or two people, but to be institutionally ingrained on a cultural level, on a statutorial level, on a policy level that is consistently carried out to the point that even when it's not a white person carrying it out, it's still executed and it still benefits the same group. So in essence, you've heard over and over again that don't get... Uh, enamored with black faces in high places. France Fanon told us that at the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, so we, we understand that the colonized mind is just as effective um, as the ingrained white mind. The colonized black mind is just as dangerous as or not, if not more dangerous than the ingrained white mind. And uh, we have to understand that something that I've often said and I've been quoted as saying is one of the greatest threats to black progress is a black person with a white agenda. And so you have to understand that a lot of times the white agenda is being carried out by people who aren't white. Does it mean that because the person who's carrying it out isn't white, that it isn't serving white interests? And that's what racism about. It's about serving white interests. It's really truly Racism is the gatekeeper of elitism. It's really about protecting the wealthy elite, but using a group of people, white people, specifically white middle class, and upper middle class. But even white people who come from poverty are given the idea that they're better than us solely by being white and given certain privileges in, 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 in society, regardless of socioeconomic status that places them think something that Chris Rock said. And I want to say it's bigger and blacker. I could be wrong. It could have been another stand up, but I think it was bigger and blacker. He said that uh, he made a statement. He says there's not a white man in America, no matter what socioeconomic status that would trade places with me. And I'm rich. And he was obviously being facetious, but. He may be close to accurate. Who knows? There might be a white man that's willing to do it. But as a general notion, the average white man values his white male identity over black male money. So in other words, to be you just to have your money, if I play my cards right, I can get that money playing my privilege. 
And so when you see an underachiever in their sphere, it's some whole, it's a whole nother dynamic at play. And there are other things that go outside of race that, uh, that impact that. So then we come back and we look again and we say, okay, you got five black police officers pull over a black man for whatever reason. And let's be very clear here that this isn't the first time that this happened. This isn't the first time that black officers have killed a black man. This is the first office uh, that this is the first time that any of this stuff has happened. Uh, what happens now is we have visual proof instead of some report that we have to process in our mind and draw a conclusion and image of. We literally got to see it. Well, you guys who saw it, saw it. I refuse to watch it. But you get enough people talking about it, you know what happened in it. And so that's what's going on in today's world is that now we're getting it almost real time. A lot of times, real time. A lot of times it's being put on social media live and we are watching it in real time. So before they can get a chance to put a spin on it, before they get a chance to put a spin on it, we already have the, the play the play by play. And so it makes it harder to bury things um, from a bureaucratic perspective because it's already out there. Now you can do spins and you can try to paint it. But now when you got multiple angle cameras that they didn't know before they wrote the report, which was falsified. Now it's hard because it's coming from everywhere. Things you didn't think about. You're thinking ain't nobody out here filming with their phones. You forgot about the camera up on the light pole. So all of this is going on. So let's get back to why we can still identify this as being a racist act. Because here's the first thing you have to do is you have to get out of your mind. What Nilly Fuller Jr. said 40 years ago is that until you understand supreme, uh, uh, white supremacy racism, uh, how it impacts you, how it moves, how it operates, et cetera, et cetera, uh, everything you think you know will only confuse you. And here's the thing. That the most of us, because we've dealt with hatred firsthand, we identify the hatred of a white person with racism. That's bigotry. That's I hate you because you're black. But the power and the policies for me as an individual to use that hatred to impact multiple blacks. Now you're moving into the framework of racism. Racism is an institutionalized dynamic. It isn't a personal or emotional dynamic. You don't have to be mad to execute racism. You just simply operate by the statutes, the policies, the culture, and everything that's inhibit, I mean, encompassed within a certain environment. And racism will take care of itself. It's it's a social ecosystem of a bureaucracy that literally is self-sustained. It is put in place and it protects itself. And so no matter who is inside of it, that's why you can't change it from the inside, because once you get on the inside, the very nature of the beast, you either conform to it or you're crushed by it. And so that's the thing, uh, Jeffrey, uh, I'm going to try to get that link to you. If you're talking about the legacy wealth class, uh, I'll try to get that link to you in the box before I leave. Oh, hell, here it is right here. 
Uh, I didn't know I had it setting up. I don't know if that's what you're looking for. If not, you can always email me. But this is the link to the Legacy Wealth class. Today is the last day that it's going to be the price that it has been. It's going up and it's worth it. But uh, I, I'm not sure if that's what it is, but I'm putting it out there just in case because you mentioned it. Look, so, okay, now here we are. So, and, and, it's, and it's funny that Jeffrey mentioned uh, a course, and I'm not even sure if he's talking about the Legacy Wealth Club because he said classes, uh, uh, but whatever it is, I'll get you squared away. Uh, but here it is. So let's talk about wealth. It isn't the hatred of the white man that has sustained the ever-widening racial wealth gap. It is the policies within institutions like the financial institutions, like politics, like academia, uh, and so many other places that literally support one group expanding and growing and the crushing and the shrinking of other groups, the policies that literally support and facilitate gentrification. Well, we got to understand we can trace gentrification back to redlining. And it's simply a, a policy now that we have limited where you can be. We're literally hurting you to spaces because we are not allowing you in other spaces because your very presence drives down the value and limits funding. That's what redlining was. Redlining was saying if there's a black family, just one black family in a community, the ability to get funding, the ability to uh, have economic uh, economic growth in the area is, is stymied because banks won't give money. So a great deal of hostility between whites, uh, even whites that didn't really have problems with black, came from the fact that they didn't want blacks driving down their property value. They didn't want blacks coming in and limiting their access to uh, business capital, their access to capital to expand and to uh, develop their communities and grow their communities and, and flourish within their communities. So they naturally said, we don't want you around. And it became a hostile and contentious situation that wasn't initially driven by hate. It was driven by the need to protect their dollar. And so it became a natural hatred that wasn't initially driven. Everybody didn't come in hating black people. That was a time that poor blacks and white blacks literally had uprisings in the South during uh, slavery and right after slavery until the point uh, uh, white privilege was ushered in and even poor white people had better standing than rich black people. And there you are. And I can get into that another time, but let's go back. I want to get back specifically to how institutional racism doesn't require a white person to execute it. It requires a person willing to be in the system, wanting to be a part of the system, whether it's corporate America. When you get inside of corporate America, uh, you have some who are what you would call radical, and revolutionary. They go in and they are literally able to change the culture because what, but I'm going to tell you how they change the culture. You got to be able to go in as a black person or in many times there are some white people who have went in and changed the culture. If we're going to be honest about it, but when you go into corporate America and you say, I'm going to change the culture where blacks can benefit. I'm going to change the culture where women can benefit. I'm going to change the culture where someone other than a white male has an opportunity to be at the top of this. And this is what I'm going to do. But in order to do that, I have to put the people who are going to benefit the most by the success of the company at ease. So I got to say, I'm going to change your culture, but you're still going to get your money. But I'm going to open doors for other people. And by opening doors for other people, I'm going to put you in a light that 
people will appreciate you, will respect you, and you're still going to be okay. Your family wealth is set, but I'm going to open gates for other people. And by doing it, I'm going to enrich you more. There has to be in this culture a way that the people who are most benefited by this racial culture aren't harmed by the radical change, at least not initially. And if that doesn't happen, you're not going to happen it because what you're doing is you're messing with their money. This is even in religion. This is even in the church. You have to understand that this is everywhere. So you just uh, are not dealing with how someone feels. You're dealing with policy. You're dealing with statutes. You're dealing with that. So when we go into the police department, the police department, you're talking about qualified immunity. It's where you literally have a carte blanche to go off into certain communities and be hostile and police instead of protect and, and, and cause harm and arrest at disproportionate rates and violate rights and do all of this. And not very much is going to happen because it's a part of a system that is designed to protect certain things. So if we've got to do this over here, now you got to also understand that the, 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 the dollar is always playing a role in this. Well, imprisoning people is a business. Well, who are we going to imprison? We're going to imprison the wealthy people over here who make the decisions and control the economy and all this. Stuff. No, we're going to go over here to the people who have no power to defend themselves, people who have no voice, people who can literally be incarcerated for something they didn't do, serve 25 and 35 years for it, and then be found to be innocent and released with little or no compensation in many states. That's institutional racism. That is where critical race theory identifies that there is a certain group that is going to be disproportionately impacted by policy, by law and statute. And in this case, you're going to find when you see, while there are white men who are wrongfully convicted, when you see the story of a person being released after serving 25, 35, 40 years in prison for being wrongfully convicted and now DNA shows that they weren't the culprit, who are they? Who are they? And so you look at it and you say, okay, now you have these black men pull over this black man and they beat him until his injuries end in him uh, passing away. And so the argument, even by some black people, is it, they can't say it's racism. They can't say it's white cops, so it can't be racism. Racism isn't about who commits it. Racism is about how it's facilitated. How is it institutionally supported? How can I, with great specificity and detail, identify policies that made it possible? And those policies are a part of a system that benefits one group over another. If I can do that, then it's still a part of racism. It's still, a, and it can be a part of elitism. There are certain things that benefit wealthy people over poor people. That's elitism. But often elitism is hidden and covered by racism because that gets people emotionally divided and it puts one group against another group while the group that's actually benefiting the most isn't really being bothered because they are over here in their penthouse. And the battle is going on normally between lower middle class white people and black people. So in essence, 
when we talk about how was those five cops killing him a racist act, it was carried out from a racist institution. They just happened to be the handlers. And the way to understand that is to go back to slavery. When you go back to slavery, there were black overseers, a lot of the whippings that took place were given by blacks to blacks. Again, create animosity, hatred, uh, and a bunch of other psychological warfare things that were taking place. Um, there were black slave hunters. There were black slave owners. Does that mean that slavery wasn't a racist institution? Absolutely not. Just had people participating in it that wasn't a part of the race that predominantly benefited from it. You got to understand, there is no absolutes in this dynamic, and that's what makes the dynamic so successful. If every white person was rich and every black person was poor, we'll have a civil war. But what happens is, what, uh, you go back and you talk to anybody that knew me in 2008 and asked them what I said when Barack Obama was elected uh, to be the next president of the United States. I said, we just got back, back 40 years. Not because, not only because I'm not on the dim bandwagon, first and foremost. Number two, I know how the system operates. One book that every last one of you should read is The Grand Chessboard by Brzezignu Brzezinski. If you don't know who Brzezignu Brzezinski is, Brzezignu Brzezinski is that dude when it comes to understanding politics, world power, geopolitics, global uh, warfare, and everything else. The Grand Chess Board is one of the most unbelievably eye-opening books about how world power is built. But uh, get, get an understanding of that. But when you sit up and you look, I sit up and I said, uh, we took a step back. And it wasn't simply because I know what's happened under dem Democratic administrations. Uh, and no, I'm not a Republican, not close. Uh, two different wings, same fucking bird, shitting on the head of black people from day one, still doing it, still playing the game. You just gotta know who's gonna benefit you and get you what you want and learn how to play the game. But we can't play the game because we don't have the power. If you can't put money in the pockets of politicians, you don't control Jack. Voting for somebody to get in office and then be controlled and moved and handled by someone who is enriching them leaves you nothing. You feel good. Also, you also got to understand you make up 14 percent of the population. A, a, a situation where you're voting for somebody makes you a person that is a minority in the voting process as majorities win. So the idea that we're doing something is all an illusion. It's a litmus test. It's one of the ways that they determine whether or not we still believe in the system. Nobody ever gets that. Voting isn't about controlling anything. The people in office are listening to the people in power. And if you're not in power, you're not controlling Jack. But look, on a local level, it's a little bit different. But on a federal level, state level, totally different. But look, check this out. So it's it, it's it's not about uh, voting. But anyway, the whole Barack Obama thing, the reason I said that we were set back is because now you're going to hear over and over again, can't holler racism anymore. You got a black president. All of a sudden, America is not racist now because it has a black president. 
And one of the things I remember was a year after that, he had been in the office for almost a year. And that was this big town meeting hosted by Tavis Smiley. It had uh, the Honorable Minister Farrakhan. It had uh, Michael Eric Dyson. It had Michelle Alexander. It had a, a bunch of other the, the, the top minds within the legal academy, the social academy, political academy. Uh, my boy, Cornell West was there and, and a, a bunch of other people. And they were going and they were at this big, it wasn't a round table, it was a big square table, but they were there and they were talking. And it was something that uh, uh, Mr. Farrakhan said that totally blew me away. And it sent me back to Brzezignu Brzezinski because I studied the in, influence that Brzezignu Brzezinski, who was the person uh, tapped by uh, uh, David Rockefeller to create the Trilateral Commission. If you don't know what the Trilateral Commission is, that's another conversation for another day. But this is what, 1971, 1972, right, right around the time that they're talking about uh, population control uh, and a bunch of other things took place. Anyway, so Brzezinski Brzezinski has been around for a while. Uh, he just passed away maybe eight, seven, eight years ago. But his daughter is in the political field now, moving around as an analyst. But this guy was unbelievably brilliant. So he is the person responsible for the Trilateral Commission. But he also groomed Barack Obama from the early 80s, his freshman year in college for this. He, the first time he met Barack Obama was his freshman year in college. And he met him by uh, being introduced by Barack's white uncle, who happened to be in... Uh, a member of the CIA. Whole nother story some other time we'll get into it. But this is why reading and researching is so important. But anyway, he walks him through all of this. So I understand that this guy is here for a reason. But something that Minister Farrakhan said that really truly just blew my mind. He said, what we have to understand is while we identify with this brother, while we identify with this brother, while we must, as Black people, stand and protect him, whether we disagree with him or not, because he represents us in a way that we cannot escape him representing us. And I'll talk about that a little later. But he says Let, what we must understand at the very core of it is we have a Black man who was chosen and selected before he was ever elected to handle white people's affairs. You should look that up and see it. The whole meeting was explosive. It was uh, eye-opening. It gave you a lot to think about. It gave you a lot. If you're a researcher and a reader, it gave you a lot to go check into and look into and learn from. And this was 2000, the end of, this was 2009. He was elected 2008, came in office 2009. The end of 2009, he had been in about a year and black people weren't really happy with what he was doing. They hadn't seen any of the benefits they thought they were going to get by having a black president. And so it led to this conversation. And that's one of the things that uh, Minister Farrakhan said. He said that you, you, we have to remember that this is a black man who was selected long before he was elected to handle white people's affairs. And he was selected specifically for AFRICOM. If you don't know what that is, look it up. But he he made it easier to push that. He had you got to understand. Think about, you're talking about a senator out of Illinois who was a junior senator. He was a senator not long after he became a, a state senator in Illinois. He became a U.S. senator. And as a junior U.S. citizen, senator, not, at, not in 
the state office of senator or the federal office of senator did he write one piece of legislation. He was a rookie by all stretches, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you got to remember when Barack Obama announced he was running for president, Hillary Clinton was all but written in as the next president of the United States. She had been handed the mantle. She was the golden child. All of a sudden, here come Barack Obama. All of a sudden, things start coming up about Hillary. All of a sudden, she started losing traction. He started gaining traction all upon the political machine. It's the way the game is played. That's why they have the electoral college. You don't control Jack. They're going to put what they want in when they want it in, in that office. And it's a vassal position in the first place. That's not where the power plays are made. That's not where the power choices are made. And until you learn and understand and really truly understand how this thing works, you won't get it. And you'll always be frustrated and you'll always be convinced that how they gaslight us is because you didn't get out and vote. I make up 14 percent of the population and all 14 percent of that is not even a voting age. So you making me believe that I'm the one I'm the reason Trump got in office and I'm not even arguing whether he should have been in or what he shouldn't have been in. That's not. But that's what they, they gassed us up and told us. No, black people not voting didn't put Trump in office. White, middle aged, conservative, uh, middle, uh, midstream conservative women put Donald Trump in the office. And nobody wants to talk about that because it doesn't match the narrative. It wasn't black people not voting. Again, we make up 14% of the population. We didn't, we, we're not shifting that. It's 45, it's 48 million of us and a hundred and something million of them. So then what was it? Moderate, conservative, white, uh, white women. Look at the numbers. This is after dude talked about grabbing them by the you know what and and a whole bunch of other stuff that you think would have turned women off. But see, that goes to show something else about how this process worked. See, white women to get black women gassed up about feminism, about how horrible the men are and how we need to fight for our rights. And they'll get us all gassed up and we'll stay at odds with one another. But when it balls, they'll go out and vote for a person that in every sense of the word looks like they shouldn't be behind them because he damn sure didn't have anything for feminism. He's, but he served a purpose. He had a purpose. And the one thing is they're going to always vote white before they vote female. But they'll have us gassed and working against one another. And we don't get it. Back to uh, and, uh, and hopefully closing to this whole dynamic of racism being executed and carried out by none. You got to understand, even during the civil rights movement, there are a bunch of black people who are facilitating white interests. When white interests are being served by way of a schematic system that's in place that is not part of some individual conspiracy, but a institutionalized cultural reality where all you have to do is go there and it's going to happen. When black police officers are hired onto the force, they're hired into a culture where when they're trained, they're being trained and told what they can do what they can't do, what they can get away with. And even when it's an unspoken policy, they might not go and say, okay, you can come over here and whoop his ass. And then the next day they might be trained in a different uh, pre, uh, precinct or whatever. And they say over here, we don't do that. 
It might not be saying that, but you simply watch what is being done here, what's being done over there over time, and eventually it comes around. And then you sit up and you plug in the high level of tension that's constantly there as a police officer. And then you look at the type of people who come in, look at the psychological evaluations, and you look at you have this powder keg that's just waiting to explode. And when it does, you look at how it's handled. Again, if every time a rogue police officer, white or black, did something harmful to blacks and they were immediately dealt with, in direct correspondence to the level of their infraction, then you could sit up and say, okay, it wasn't racism, it was bigotry. If a white cop, for whatever reason, snaps and shoots a black dude for no freaking reason, the dude's not armed, not dangerous, and immediately he gets handled. Ain't no sitting at no desk, uh, uh, administrative leave, none of that. You're fired, you're arrested. You're going to sit down and you're going to face charges like any other person. And you're going to actually be held at a high level of accountability because you are a public servant. You have training and you should know better. We're going to hold you. If that was the case, then you could say, OK, then no, we're not dealing with a racist system. But when you sit up and you look and the go to is to cover and protect what is obviously a failure to do what you were supposed to do. And in many cases, criminal. Well, then you have not only a situation where you might have bigotry, you may have bigotry, you may have something I can't stand them. You may have that. But then you also have a system that says we will protect you when you do it, because there is a benefit outside of the physical death in you doing it. Let's go back to the end of slavery. Reconstruction, the Black Cloud area, and into the early er the early stages of Jim Crow, it was very common for blacks in the South to be walking and moving about and see a black person hanging from a tree. The lynching wasn't so much about killing the person that they killed; it was the message sent to everyone else. You don't belong. You don't have a voice. We can literally kill you, publicly lynch you, and nothing's going to happen. It is a form of trauma, psychological warfare. It's a way of creating a more docile population, and it's traumatizing. And traumatic memory has a way of functioning in our lives and keeping us from doing and being what we're supposed to be. You literally are perpetuating a trauma cycle and you're doing it with, 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 with it being sanctioned by a government organization. So you go from lynching them from a tree to shooting them in, in the back. I'm, the first time I ever saw a killing of an individual, an unarmed man, uh, was the videotape from Oscar Grant. And I haven't been the same since. You know, I had read about Amadou Diallo, saw the, the uh, news. I had read about uh, Sean Bell in New York, shot 52 times. Uh, 
because they said they thought he had a car coming out the day of it, the morning of his wedding, coming from his bachelor party. Uh, and it was others. And, and, and long before that was Mike Brown and all this other stuff and, and, and Tamir Rice and so many others that we have just lost. And the, the, the list has grown so long. Uh, I saw it. And it shook me to the core. Because Oscar Grant had actually tried to de-escalate the situation. He wasn't the one fighting. He was trying to stop the fight. But they had him held. He was handcuffed. And he was irate that he had been handcuffed when he was done. And they came over, put him on his stomach, handcuffed. He was prone, face down. Officer pulled his gun, shot him in the back. I have never forgot that. But imagine the message that sends. And I think the officer ended up getting like a year or something, if, if any, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. But how many, actually nothing happened. How many people are coming into the police force? And, and this is just venturing out to, 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 to have discussion. How many are coming into the police force with psychological issues? When you look at the type of person that applies to the so, po, uh, police department, you get basically two types and then some exceptions. The first is military background. They automatically qualify. They don't have to have the 60 hours. I think it's 60 hours now for most police departments. Uh, that was the time all you had to do was have a high school diploma, but I think it's 60 hours now of college, unless you have military background and then you can get in. Here's the problem. If you've been in the military, we've been in war times for the last 20 years. So most people coming into the military that's coming to the police department since the 90s are going to have some type of uh, combat experience and therefore have some form of PTSD. You don't see the shit you see in war and it not impacts you. OK, so they're coming in with that. So they're on a whole different level. Now, the one thing I will say which tells me that not killing an unarmed person is possible because most people, most officers who come in from the military understand the rules of engagement. So the first thing they want clarity on is the rules of engagement. Why? Because if you don't operate within the rules of engagement, you can be court-martialed in the army, meaning that you don't just get to shoot people because I'm at war. You have to have the rules of engagement and those rules apply. So if you're not fired upon, if there's not an immediate or imminent threat to the life and security of uh, army personnel or someone you are designed to protect, you don't get to fire upon them. I don't care what they're doing. And so you have to make sure that that thing you think is a bomb or that thing you think is uh, an explosive device or that thing you think is a gun that's coming at you is really one because if it's not, you can end up being court-martialed and you can literally go to prison for killing somebody in a war. So their rules of engagement is different. And so they think about it, but that's not the case for everybody else. Now, the other uh, large population of police officers, and this is just my observation and studying and looking at and evaluating and just talking to people. I mean, I spent a lot of time talking to police officers over, over years. I have conversations with them. I want to know what you know what's on their mind, what's going on. And I don't think every person is bad. I don't think that every person has ill intent. But I do have this uh, problem that upsets the cops in my family and the cops that I actually consider to be friends. And that is, I find it hard to use the word good cop when good cops see bad shit and don't do anything about it. But here's what I can tell you. Having one of my closest friends be a former cop, Dr. Michael Blanchard, um, 
he spent two years in front. I could tell you we're talking with him, knowing him and knowing others. You don't get to be a good cop and actually call out BS and stay on that force loan. Again, the system protects itself. It's crazy, right? Well, here's what I found about the average uh, person who's coming in who's not Army. And, you know, the average person as a police officer isn't your most popular kid in school, isn't your jock, isn't the person that everybody loved. A lot of times these are the people that got picked on. These are the people who were, you know, in some way socially awkward. These are the people who didn't naturally experience power in their developmental years. They didn't just experience the power of being the jock, the power of being the most popular kid, the power of being handsome and voted most likely to succeed and most uh, best dressed and all the stuff that happened to us over the course of our, our, our school careers. These are kids who were probably not handled well, didn't experience a lot of power. Now you put them in a position where the badge and the gun gives them power they never had. And I got a lot of cops get mad at me when I say that, but I'm not the only one who thinks it. If you go read Breaking Rank by Norm Stamper, who is a former white police chief for San Diego and then uh, Seattle, he says the same thing. He also says that while white cops won't admit it, there's a natural fear of black men. He says, and the bigger and the darker the black man, the greater the fear. He says they won't admit it, but it's there. This idea that black men have supernatural, superhuman strength means that they don't have to be armed to hurt me. That's the way we are portrayed. That's the way we are seen. We're over-sexualized. We're over uh, we, 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 we're given this superhuman. Now, are we more athletic? Yes, that's y'all's fault. That's the result of crossbreeding. If you look, and people get mad at me when I say that, I'm not here to make people smile. I'm here to tell the truth. If you look and you search the last 50 top sprinters in 100 meters, gold medals in the Olympics, gold medals in world championships, they come from colonized are enslaved countries. Britain, Linford Christie, Carl Lewis, U.S., um, and, and, and Leroy Burrell, and, and Maurice Green, and Tim Montgomery, all these cats, and I can say this because that's my field. So all these cats who are the best of the best of the best are explosive. They're sprinters, long jumpers and sprinters. They are explosive. They have more what you call fast twitch muscle fibers then they have slow twitch muscle fibers. They are made for explosive, strong uh, uh, things versus uh, uh, slow twitch muscle fibers, which are more for endurance. But they they have it. Uh, Jamaica, Canada, uh, had Donovan Bailey and Ben Johnson, and and on and on. And so you have you have that. So in essence, there's this idea from that that we are superhuman. No, we have been <laughs> genetically modified. Uh, it's the truth. Uh, if you go to Africa, uh, our strengths aren't necessarily athleticism as much as it is endurance. You, you, your great distance runners come out of Africa, Kenya, uh, 
the Kenyans and 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 uh uh God, why why am I Ethiopians? They that that's what they specialize in. It was the breeding of the strongest of the strongest until you just got some something that's unbelievable, and now we're passing it down genetically continuously. Uh, but again, uh when you sit up and you look at the scope of why police officers are able to get away with what they get away with, then you're able to look at it and say, well, while black black officers aren't going to be able to get away with it, and here's why they're not going to be able to get away with it. It's not that they're not going to get away with it because they're black. Simply on that. They're not going to get away with it because they're black. And it was so freaking over the top. So in essence, you had black cops do something that even white cops right now are like shaking their head at. That's the extreme of it. And that's why they are getting handled because it's nowhere they can hide. There's no way they can go and justify it. There's nothing they can do. They pulled him over. They falsified why they pulled him over. They immediately snatch him out the car and get the banging on him. He jumps up and runs after he realized they're not going to stop banging on him. They catch him and then bang on him a whole lot more. And they had him subdued long before they stopped punching on him and kicking on him and stomping him and spraying him and tasing him. Now, you you can't hide it. So yeah, you're going to get this. And then you also have the, the normal thing. It ain't beyond the system to sacrifice a white officer. It's been done. Chauvin, prime example. Bruh, you're going to take this L because we're not. The system isn't going to ever take the L for nobody, no matter who it is, whether they're white, black, or whatever. The system will sacrifice whoever it has to sacrifice to main and play. And the thing is, what they never want is the system to explode or, or, or be crushed by resistance that becomes so great that they can't withstand it. So they're always going to go to the very ends to protect what they can protect. But they're never going to sacrifice the system for any one person or any group, a uh, small group of people. So. What you're getting is they just stepped out and did some stupid stuff behind what I'm believing is stupid stuff. Still haven't 100 percent vetted that story, but it's the it's it's the going story uh, about the girlfriend. Now, the stepfather of um, Tyree Nichols is saying that it's not true. Uh, That could very well be. Uh, But what I can tell you is a lot of times families won't know. And if you come in town and you start messing around with someone that you don't think your mom and your stepdad wants you to mess around with, you're probably not telling them you're messing around with them. So they may not know that this relationship was going on. You know, last thing you want to do is say, I'm messing with this particular person. By the way, not only am I messing with this person, this person's ex is a cop. Not only is this person's ex a cop, they're part of the Scorpion uh, uh, unit. Mama ain't hit. Mama's going to lose her mind. So you've got to uh believe that maybe he kept that to himself and then maybe it's not true one way or another uh what i wanted to get across today was in simplicity it's not the person that carries out the act it's the system that sustains uh and holds things in place that allows that act to take place that facilitates it even though they didn't get away with it The idea that they thought they could was based off the system. 
the policies and the practices and what they have been led to expect, not just in their police department, but nationally at the level of BS that we have seen happen to black people in our communities and nothing be done. Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, and again, prime example of institutional racism, Michael Brown. George Soros gets behind Derrick Bell. Derrick Bell is running for a DA. Derrick Bell runs on the, comp the campaign promise of prosecuting Darren Wilson, the person who shot Michael Brown. Derrick Bell gets in. Now, remember, Derrick Bell is being funded and pushed by billionaire George Soros. Soros has an agenda in circumventing certain sta state statutes. And the, the way to circumvent certain state statutes on a criminal level is to own the DA's office because the DA, the DA, the one voted in, the, the head of the office determines what crimes are going to be prosecuted outside of the office. Somebody gets murdered, you're prosecuting that. But certain statutes, some DAs, I'm not prosecuting that. I'm not, I'm not wasting taxpayers' money to go mm -hmm. after that. And they can make that and nobody's holding them accountable. Every now and then the attorney general steps in and says, we're going to, we're going to do it if you don't do it. But what happens is, you know how much stuff you can get through where you're mishandling people on a criminal level and nothing's being done because you own the DA? Well, George Soros didn't just do it or did it with uh, Kim Gardner and a couple others. The Midwest, he was all in that mess. All of it coming off of the heels of Ferguson, right? Okay, so now you got Derrick Bell in office. Derrick Bell has never even mentioned Darren Wilson once as he got in. Why? System won't allow it. He used it, got everybody amped up, made people feel like he was the person. He doesn't represent the people. He represents the system. That's racism. It doesn't matter the fact that he's black. I tell you all the time, the most dangerous person to black progress is a black person with a white agenda. That's what we, uh, we need to be aware of. So again, um, I hope that I gave some clarity to why it still can be considered a racist act. We have to get to the point where we can distinguish bigotry from racism. Two totally different things. Bigotry is about hatred. Racism is about a system. The system protects a group of people. That's in this country, that system uh, protects white people, specifically white wealthy people. And then white people who aren't as wealthy are the buffers. They get benefits just by being white, which gives them a reason not to cause friction. Because if white middle class people ever got up, upset with the system, it would be a problem. So that's why they have privilege. That's how privilege was created in the first place. We've got to create a difference that doesn't allow for unification. You, if you think they're afraid of black people unifying, what do you think they'd be afraid of everybody who made less than 500000 a year unified? You've got to understand the game that's been played. You got to understand litmus test and why things operate and move in certain ways. Um, I'm going to consistently try to continue to come to you every day and answer some of these questions uh, to the best of my abilities. I don't know everything. I have spent 30 plus years gaining an understanding of what's going on. I've done over 70,000 plus hours of uh, academic research. Uh, into everything from uh, wealth, uh, the racial wealth gap, <clears throat> racial wealth gap uh, 
racism within the school system. I have written a position paper on the disproportionality of special education referrals of young black males, how the alienation of young black males based on those disproportionate referrals impacts their dropout rate, which impacts their incarceration rates, which impacts their capacity to earn a living wage and on down the lines. I have done extensive research on African-American adolescent and young adult male violence. What's driving the violence in our community? How do we mitigate it? And the primary way of mitigating it is social uh, socialization. Proper racial socialization is the preparation of young black children, both male and female, uh, to be able to develop into individuals who can move into our culture and our society, into the system and operate in a way that they not only are competitive, but can win. That's our responsibility to educate them and socialize them. That doesn't happen when you have 1.5 million men missing, uh, 1.3 of them in prison, making up the majority of the prison population, the, large, the largest part of the prison population, around 40% of the prison population is black, 37% is white. That means that they are numbers drastically and are more inclined by statistically, by statistic validation, more inclined to commit crimes. Even when we're talking about the impoverished communities where crime is high, white people are still, a white man is three times more likely to have drugs on him than a black man. Who's more likely to be stopped? We have to look at all these different things. So I've looked at that. I've come up with programs. I've created uh, systems that we have, uh, have a small think tank. Uh, we, we, we're working against uh, an unbelievable force without the Harvest Institute by Cla uh, Dr. Claude Anderson and the Odyssey Project, which I started uh, over two decades ago. There are no major think tanks coming up with solutions, literally sitting up and saying, this is what's going on. This is how you overcome it. You got a bunch of voices moving around, but most of the voices moving around aren't around for, for the true purpose of elevation. It's about to prove who's the smartest, who's the beast. And I don't care if my name ain't on Jack. I, I don't need my name on anything. I'm building a legacy. It'll speak of me after I'm gone. That's all I care about is that my great grandkids will know that they're living a better life in this country because of what their papa did. That's that's what matters to me is that I'm touching this world in a way that maybe after I'm gone, it'll start to show. I don't need no pats on the back. I don't need a whole bunch of things. But what I would like is to have support for the work that we are doing. But finally. I want us to really pay attention to this whole unity thing that I, I mentioned. And I'm gonna go back to when there was a push for unity. We had unity with the civil rights movement, but we spent a great deal of that force and that energy headed in a direction that didn't serve us. And even Dr. King, who was the greatest catalyst and mobilizer of all the people who were participating in it, and he was far from the only one, but he was the greatest mobilizer of this idea of integration. And he had to admit that he was integrating his people into a burning house that without economic stability, without power, without reparations, without the things we need to establish autonomy within this country. Being a part of their system actually weakened us. When we sold our our movie theaters, when we sold our cab companies, when we sold our, our, our cleaners and our shoe stores and our, and our gas stations and all the things we owned within our community that was ours, we sold our wealth away. We sold our economic autonomy away. And we did it so that we could patronize them. So now we're putting ourselves in a situation that the thing we fought for was to put more money into their economy. We literally fought to finance our own demise. 
We didn't understand it. But Dr. King saw it at the end. And then when he decided to do an about face in reverse, they had him killed. And people said, I'm saying, well, who had, and, 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 and you maybe heard me say this before. I'm going to share it with you. When I say they had him killed, I mean the U.S. government had him killed. This wasn't no uh, James Earl Ray, racist, bigot, uh, whatever. This was a move by the U.S. government that says he's now a problem. He has to be eliminated. And you're saying, Doc, now you're becoming a conspiracy theory. No, I'm just telling you what a U.S. jury uh, in civil court found in 1999. I read, I research, I learn. Here's what happened. Once... Uh, Martin Luther King realized that integration wasn't what, it, what was needed. It was economic stability. It was the, the underwriting of black wealth that needed to be done so that we could sustain ourselves. He started to push for it. It became a fight. He started talking about going back to the Capitol, but in this time he wasn't talking about having a dream. He wasn't talking about uh, little black girls and little, little black girls and little black boys uh, holding hands with little white girls and little white boys in, in, in harmony anymore. That wasn't what he was talking about. He's saying, I'm coming, we're coming to cash a check. One, you have been in default. Of. We're coming to get our money. And so here's what happened. The U.S. government contacted a gangster in New Orleans, a mobster in New York, Orleans, who had been turned. He was an informant. So he was allowed to remain free and do his stuff, but he had to give pay homage and do whatever he had to do whenever the government wanted him to. And they came to him and they wanted him to get rid of Dr. King. This gangster contacted a hitman in Houston, where I live and reside right now, where I grew up and have returned recently to live. And that hitman set up a plan. Now, it was understood that he was going to be in Memphis. It was understood where he was going to be. It was understood what room he was going to be in. So now we're starting to understand that there were people on the inside that was aware of this. There were people walking side by side with him that made sure he was on that balcony when he was on that balcony. Now, the crazy thing that I got from watching this trial, this trial was videotaped, by the way. It happened in 1999. The King family sued the U.S. government for being... Uh, complicit and involved, culpable in the death of Dr. King is the way that 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 it played out. Short of it, they won. They won the suit. The U.S. government was found guilty. Let me tell you the end of the story. Now. This hitman goes to Memphis to kill Dr. King. What is crazy is at the same time the hitman was there, the government already scrambled a special special forces unit. Nobody ever had to say who they really were and what they were doing operating on U.S. soil, which they shouldn't have been. But they had scrambled a U.S. special forces unit that if the hitman didn't do it, they were going to do it. So Dr. King was done. It was a done deal. And the U.S. government played a role in it. Now, this isn't me making it up. Go look it up. Go look it up. In 1999, the U.S. government was found to be uh, responsible for the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. That's the kind of games we're talking about. That's the kind of depth we're talking about. That's the kind of things we have to be aware of. But when we go back and look at that same time, I'm talking about unity again. There was the Black Nationalist Party. There was the Black Panther Party. And the FBI created COINTELPRO to disrupt all of that. And the reason they did it was 
uh, evident in uh, J. Edgar Hoover's response when asked what was the greatest threat to national security. When all the enemies the U.S. had, as close as Cuba, as far as the Soviet Union and China and the Middle East, his response was black unity. His greatest was concern wasn't what was going on over there. It was black people uniting. The Black Panthers were doing it. The Black Nationalist Party was doing it. And they literally went inside out to implode it. But it tells you the power of unity. It tells you when we come together, we work together, and we decide that we are going to be the force that literally lifts our people. Unbelievable things happen at that time. So that's my challenge, is trying to convince our people that it's not coming from them. You're never going to convince a morally corrupt society, a morally corrupt system, a morally bereft uh, culture to respond to you based off of moral demands. The mor It wasn't moral. This country was never built on morality. Let's go back and think. First of all, this country was settled at, uh, and the, the natives moved and pushed back by criminals. These weren't the people that British held, the British held in the most highest regard. These are the people they really didn't want to deal with that they sent over here in the first place. So those are the ones that were the anchor in the origin of the stuff that's coming here. So, and so we, we, we start there that, you know, then look at the things that were done. This is a country that built its economic uh, prowess on the backs of black slaves. And then when the demand to release the slaves became evident, and it wasn't, and, and, and let's be clear about this, Abraham Lincoln didn't do what he did and, and become the catalyst that he became and, and work with abolitionists because it, it was a moral thing. He did it because of the love for the union. And he understood that if he didn't do something to break the back of the South, the South was becoming so economically powerful because it was using free labor to advance its wealth in a rapid fashion that they would lose the South and the country, the country would split and it wouldn't be as powerful and as strong. His vision for the union was what caused him to free the slaves. The slaves being freed would cripple the South, slow down economic growth, and give power back to the North. So let's get that straight, first of all. But again, all of this stuff is playing out. But even after free, it's not like they came and say, you know what, we really handled y'all wrong. Now, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln said, hey, look, we're, we're going to have to give them something. If we turn them loose, we got to give them something to hold themselves together. We're going to give them 40 acres and a mule. He gets assassinated. Jackson, Johnson, I always get them two Andrews mixed up, comes in office and kills it. Takes over the president and say, hell no, we ain't giving no damn 40 acres and a mule. Are you crazy? You got to understand. They've been doing all the work. They have all the knowledge about planning, about cultivating, about growing, about building, all of the stuff. If we're going to have an infrastructure, they build it. They're going to be the ones paid. They're going to have the companies. to. to no, 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 no. We can't underwrite that. Then they follow 
the 12 years of reconstruction up in the South with another 20, 25 years of black codes where they told you what companies you couldn't own, what jobs you couldn't hold. The fact is you could not buy an own property in most of the geographical locations. So at the very best, you were going to be a tenant and a renter. Then they ushered in in that same environment, sharecropping, which basically put you back on the plantation, but you could go in as you please, but you had to work the field and you were getting paid bare minimum enough to, after they cashed you out every year on what you owed for what you had to use that they gave you credit, adopted me, him and him and my great grandmother adopted me. And he was the son of a sharecropper born in 1909. He had to drop out of school in the second grade at seven years, seven years old, just to make ends meet. His hands were needed in the field. That's what happened to us. This country wasn't built on morality. It was built on greed. And greed is still running this country. And so what we're going to have to do is determine what we're going to do to insulate ourselves from their treachery, from their greed. We're, we're going to have to decide ourselves that we are going to give ourselves what we need. We're going to protect our children. We're going to properly socialize our boys. We're going to heal the trauma. We're going to deal with the mental health issues. We're going to provide housing. We're It's going to be up to us. And don't tell me we can't do it. We spend $2 billion a year on Jordans. We spend another $573 during the holiday season. Yes, $573 billion with a B just during the holidays, $2 billion a year on Jordans. We are in last place on a socioeconomic level. They have 177000 in median household wealth. We have seventeen, and we out buy them buying Mercedes-Benz two to one. So don't tell me we don't have it. We can't get behind programs. We got to stop trying to prove we belong and start building something we own. When you own something, you don't have to prove you belong. You just live in it. You just work in it. You just use it. You don't need to prove anything. We keep proving. We keep trying to prove to them that they should accept us. No. So that's it for today. I want to thank you guys for stopping by. Uh, look. Uh, again, we're in the middle of a fundraiser. If you want to show love for the work that we've been doing for, like I said, over two decades, uh, research, think tank, programs like Black Men Lead, programs, mental health, wraparound services for male and females, uh, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, uh, therapy, and uh, rescue. Uh, we also uh, deal with a lot of other issues with the legal system. Uh, we, I mean... If it's a problem going on, we get called about it. And I do whatever I can to make my presence felt. You know, I don't have the clout of a lot of people, but I have the heart of a lion. And I go in and I, I don't put bones down. Once I get my mouth on something, I'm dying or I'm going to get what I want. And that's how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live my life on full. And I'm asking you to support the work I do. Look in the description box and give. I don't know if Jeffrey's still on here, but I hope Jeffrey got the link that he asked about and he was able to get that class going. This is the last day to, to sign up for the Legacy Wealth Program, which is an intense course on wealth building. Everything that the wealthy use to grow wealth is in there. It's 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 brought out in my book, 
my 25th book, which I just released the revised version on at the beginning of the year. Uh, all this stuff is in there, but it's broken out in this course step by step. It's intense. It's about a 24 month course in six months. Um, and it's going it's going to go up in price in order to facilitate the way we're going to dispense it moving forward this year. Uh, if you want to make a part of it, uh, if you want to be a part of it, you want to take advantage of it. it it's there. Uh, it's up to you. But he asked about it. So I put the link in the box. Uh, let me put it there again, just in case you can't see it. So there it is again. Uh, but go into the description box and there are three different ways that you can give. Find the way that you can show some love and support for the work we do. Stay tuned because I'm going to keep this stuff coming. There's so much. Um, yeah, I want to talk. About, I'm probably going to talk about the two party system because the whole Democrat Republican thing. I want to I want to break that down for you. I want Because you, 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 you talk and you get 90 percent of us voting. Democrat. When we were freed, we were almost 100 percent Republican. And very few of those 90 who vote Democrat can tell us what happened to switch that. And very few can tell us why we vote 90 percent uh, Democrat when very few of the core principles and values of uh, liberal uh, liberal thinking is along the line of the thing that we identify the most with, and that's our religion, which is Christianity and predominance. Uh, and so how are we dealing with the conflicts of that? I'm not telling somebody what to do or what to choose. I don't choose any of that. I choose what's best for me and my family. And I move accordingly. I don't put my energy and effort into things I don't control and I don't trust people who have screwed me. So if you can't tell me what I'm going to get if I vote for you, I'm not voting for you. I don't give a damn what you represent. I'm on, I want it on paper. I want something I can hold you to. I want you something that when you don't do it, I can come back to you and hold you to it. And then get with my people and say, we're not voting for you again. Get your ass up out of here. Who's the next person in line? And that only works on the local level. When you start getting the federal level, you got to have major dollars. That's about lobbying. And if you can't lobby, you ain't getting jacked done. They talk good to you. They real good talking sweet to you, rubbing you raw on the back end. But we're going to learn. Here we're going to learn. This isn't the place to come with the sensationalism. Every time we're going to have a hot topic like this whole thing with Tyree Nichols. But this is where you're going to come and you're going to get substance. You're going to get fed. You're going to learn something because that's the thing that's keeping us back. What Kim Kardashian and Kanye doing don't feed us. Don't feed us. So on that note, I'm going to get ready to get out of here. Again, I'm requesting your support uh, for the work we're doing and show back up. And we're going to do this again tomorrow. Um, it may be the two-part system. It may be something else that pops up that needs more attention, uh, more immediate attention. But we're going to get to all this stuff. And on that note, you guys have a great day. I'm out of here.